Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, we'll be listening to PSY 352, Social Psychology with Professor Nathan Smith. I hope you listen and enjoy. Okay, so when do we tend to help? We've talked about the whom, let's talk about the when. So first, during emergencies, right, the, the most serious, um, most serious negative um, situations. But we tend to calculate how risky it is for us to help. We also tend to think of whether others are there to help, etc. right? So it isn't just uh, an emergency happens and you go running in, uh, there are all these sort of mental calculations that have been um, that have been tested and been established as the, the normative behavior. Uh, so if there's a, a building that's on fire, um, most folks will stop and think of um, how risky it is and uh, whether there are other folks there to help or you know if so, if there's a, a couple guys about to run in and you're the third guy to the scene and they say, hey, we're going to go, and you might go, okay, me too, let's do it. Whereas if you were to get there and nobody else is about to help, you might look around and go, huh, all right, I'm just going to, you know, try and peek through a door and not go rushing in necessarily. Uh, the bystander effect, this is very important to know because it was an important concept in social psychology for many years, although there's some question nowadays as to... Um, whether it is as well established a fact as we thought. So the bystander effect is the more people that are present, the less any individual is likely to help. And there's a couple of reasons for this um, below. Pluralistic ignorance, looking to others for cues as to whether help is needed and not getting any such cue, especially in an ambiguous situation. Um, and this is where uh, so we've talked, we've talked a lot in the past about humans uh, being social creatures, uh, creatures intended to be social. And so part of this is that we look to others for cues as to what is going on. Um, you might see this in a, in a parent or, or child, if you have a child who... Um, uh, so, so let's say a child hears a loud noise um, a parent could react and, and be, oh no, something bad is happening. You know, if, if it's a loud noise, say it's a gunshot, the parent might react one way. Uh, whereas if you hear a loud noise and you realize, oh, it's July 4th, it's probably fireworks, you might run outside looking for the fireworks. Um, whereas if you hear a noise you think is a gunshot, you might uh, stay inside or shut your lights off or, you know, any number of things. Um, so just the way a child would look to a parent, it's sort of a simplified version of how we humans look to other humans for cues as to what the expected behavior is, what the appropriate behavior is. This happens all the time. Um, you know, if you've ever been to a new church for the first time, <coughs> if you're like me, you, you spend a lot of time looking at other people, um, trying to see what's going on, what's the appropriate uh, reaction, do I stand, you know, do I sing? Do I hold my piece of paper up in front of my face? Um, you know, if you've been to a Catholic church and you haven't been in a long time, you didn't grow up Catholic, you know, you have to look around you to see, you know, when do I stand? When do I sit? When do I kneel? Are people crossing themselves? Are they walking up? Um, you know, should I take some of the holy water or not? 
right? There are all of these different things uh, in the different church settings you'll be in uh, that you need to pay attention for. So it's just the same way that that works, um, right? It, it works um, in, in these helping situations too. And finally, the diffusion of responsibility, the, the less likely to help because you think someone else will. If there's, um, you know, if there are a lot of folks all around, uh, you might feel like you don't need to help because somebody else will take care of it for you. And this has been found, you know, um, the, the online study we saw in the book about this is, you know, they send an email to one person or ten people or a hundred people and the, the person, the one person who got it was most likely to help and then the 100 people who got it were least likely to help, right? Because some of that responsibility diffuses onto the group. So everyday helping situations, um, very different from helping explored in most studies because um, and this is where, you know, uh, research is good but limited because um, there are different circumstances, right? Helping in general, uh, number one, people are more likely to help those they know, and who who is it who you, you are helping most of the time? Well, it's probably people you know. It's probably your family, or your close friends, or your work associates. If you added up all the helping you do in a week, uh, for the average person, my guess, 90-95% of the folks that you help in a given week are people that you know, family, friends, co-workers, uh, church members, etc. Fellow students, perhaps. And most of the everyday helping is planned instead of spontaneous, right? So, um, hey, you know, hey, we need a ride to the airport on at X time on X day. Could you do it? Happy to, no problem. You put it in your calendar. Boom. Or, hey, can you watch the kids? I have to pick up an extra shift. Uh, hey, no problem. We'll be there at, you know, six thirty, and we'll see you. Late at night, boom, no problem. Scheduled, um, not spontaneous. But in experiments, this is something harder to to do, right? Most most um, helping that you read about in the chapter um, were in these kind of spontaneous um, spontaneous examples. And I wonder if that um, affects how Christians uh, have been tested. Uh, or not, um, well, we won't get to that right now, but we'll get to it later, so we'll hold that thought for later. Um, and ultimately, there's a need to be cautious about generalizing helping research findings to everyday helping, right? Because they're very different. They're very different. So, um, one geographical point that's worth noting, uh, if you live in a small city or rural area, the, they find that helping is higher. Uh, and especially because of population density. That's really the main driving factor, it seems. Um, the more densely populated a place is, the less um, the less uh, helping there is. And, um, and then what's interesting is that the people aren't different. Um, you know, you take people from a city and put them in a country and you get the same effects if you put the people in the country in the city, it gets the effects. There's something about the population density that makes people less able to help. And I, I often wonder, is it the pace of life? Is it, um, you know, if you were trying to be involved in the business of everybody around you in Manhattan, you would go crazy because there's so many people and so much stuff happening all the time that you almost, um, 
you almost block everybody out. Um, my boss is from Manhattan, and I have found that uh, her and I, I, I will see her if her and I are walking down a hall, and she will not see me. And part of it, I think, is just growing up in Manhattan, she doesn't, um, she's so surrounded by people all the time, she's not looking at faces and registering. She's kind of looking down, going forward, you know, going to the next place she has to go. So this is funny because, you know, we park in the same place and we can walk to the same office, and I'll see her walking in the hall, you know, a couple times uh, every couple weeks, and if I don't say, hey, how are you? She won't even look up. She'll just blow right past me. And it's something I didn't get at first, but as we've worked together for years, it's become clear to me this is just something she learned living, you know, growing up in Manhattan in a really busy area. So looking at mood and helping, we have a whole, um, a whole host of things we've learned about mood in the past you can look back at. Um, start with a warm glow hypothesis. So uh, people who are happy, people with an elevated mood, this increases the chance that one will help. And this might be due to an increase in the interest and willingness to act uh, in a more general way. We're not totally sure, right? But it, but it has been found that uh, if you make folks happier in some way, then they will, um, they will help more. When it comes to bad mood, it's kind of less clear. Um, it seems maybe, um, and I'm not totally convinced by some of the studies that we saw on this in the book, but it may be that uh, if a task is pleasant, people in a bad mood are more likely to help because they're looking for uh, some way to um, make themselves feel better, right? To go from being in a bad mood to being in a happy mood. Um, but folks in a bad mood may be less likely to help if the task is unpleasant. Right, because they're already in a bad mood. They don't kind of, they don't have the um, the cognitive resources, the emotional resources to do an unpleasant task. So th this kind of a general, um, uh, th these kind of general theory, and it's a good hypothesis, but um, we're we're not entirely clear if they are uh, exactly the case. And negative state relief model. So do we help to reduce our own negative mood? And again, this is something, um, it seems to me, uh, more likely that folks um, would plan, you know, this is planned helping. Um, you've, you've had a bad week or something, you're like, you know what, I'm going to go to the soup kitchen and do whatever I need to do there to help folks. Or, um, and, and this is, again, more planned than uh, the kind of spontaneous, like, oh, there's someone who needs help needs a letter mailed. A lot of letter mailing <laughs> happening in the research studies, uh, as you noted this week. And so, so continuing on this point, um, when do we help? Well, we, we help when we feel empathy for the other. Uh, Batson uh, and his colleagues have the empathy altruism hypothesis. And empathy is um, it's something Christians understand well in general. It's feeling the other's pain. It's perspective taking. Uh, this ability to put ourselves uh, in somebody else's shoes. And the connection between empathy and helping is somewhat inconsistent. Um, and some researchers have suggested that maybe helping when we feel empathy is self-centered. So I help to reduce your pain, which helps me reduce the pain I feel when I imagine yours, right? And this is a good example of 
how you can kind of get tied in knots if you're trying to figure out um, whether someone's helping for their own reasons or for somebody else's uh, benefit. So, if you, so if, imagine you, you're feeling empathy for someone else, so you're feeling their pain. When you help them, it reduces their pain, which reduces your pain. And here we are tied in a knot thinking about it. And finally, some have concluded that there's no real other centered helping. And there's certainly, um, if you consider how easy it is to get yourself tied in knots, it, it's hard to demonstrate that there is other centered helping. Um, but just because something's hard to demonstrate doesn't mean that it's not there. It just means um, we're, we're not uh, where we need to be to demonstrate it.